we're talking about repentance today, and you all, and a mighty cheer goes out through the whole audience because it's your favorite topic, I know. And so, just to start right, dive right in. What are we talking about? What does repent mean in the Scripture? Um, at a very basic level, to repent means to change one's way of life. So stop there. It's not a quick fix. It's not a, a one and done kind of thing. It's a life change as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude or heart with regard to sin and righteousness. And in the scripture, it's always about God. It's repenting away from self and sin and toward God. And, and so we could say repent, repentance is turning away from sin and self and turning toward God and righteousness. True repentance is not doing penance. You know what that word means? It means to pay off, to do things that, that pay off our sin. It's not about that or trying to earn forgiveness from God. It's not continually wallowing in misery over our sin. Repentance involves the constant repair or renewal of the heart based upon God's provision of grace in Christ and on one's position in Christ. So it's not a binge and purge kind of thing. I go out and indulge in sin and I do, I do some acts of penance and then I'm just on my way. It's, it's about a life change, a heart change that's centered in and receives the grace to do that in Jesus Christ. So some observations about repentance and, the, and the, how the word's used in Scripture. So one meaning is repentance can mean turning from unbelief and coming to saving faith. It's used that way, for example, in Acts 11.18 when the Jewish Christians heard from the Apostle Peter that Gentiles, like non-Jews, had turned to Christ, they uh, glorified God and then concluded, well, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So repentance that leads to life is how, how that is talked about in terms of conversion, coming to faith. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord does not wish that any should perish that is, suffer eternal death, but that all should reach repentance. So a turning to, to receive eternal life in Jesus Christ. A second observation about how repentance is used in Scripture is that repentance and faith always go together. You can't do one without the other. So I need a couple uh, volunteers. So um, I, this is such an active crowd here. <laughs> It's very painless, and it won't hurt, and you won't, you'll only be mildly embarrassed. So I just need one person here and one person here. Okay, so here's Matt, and here's Dan. So stand, spread out a little bit farther. And you, okay, right there, that's good. So let's say that Dan represents my trust in myself and my sin. Okay? And... Matt represents Christ and trusting in Christ and my righteousness. <laughs> so in order for me to turn my back on Dan and turn toward Matt, I have to do that. I, 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 at the same time I'm turning my back on Matt, I'm turning my back on Dan, I'm turning myself toward Matt. So Matt is my salvation and my righteousness. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay you can sit back down. See, that wouldn't be bad. So the moral of the story is turn to Matt, not to Dan. So repentance and faith always go together. And we see that in Jesus preaching the gospel in, in Mark chapter 1, where he said, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preached that. And Paul, in describing his ministry, said, I, I testified to everybody 
of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So faith and repentance go together. Um, we, we come to Christ and we receive salvation through repentance and faith, and we grow in Christ through repentance and faith. We never graduate from that process. It's, all, it's centered in the gospel, and it's always repenting and believing, repenting and believing, repenting and believing. That's how we grow. Uh, that's why Martin Luther, the reformer from a few centuries ago, said the whole Christian life must be one of repentance. And another one said, God assigns to believers a race of repentance which they are to run throughout their lives. Again, it's not one and done. Repentance must involve a change in the heart, for sin comes from the heart. Jesus taught this, said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality. Our hearts are filled with desires. And we are always acting out of our desires. So the Christian life is one of continuously turning away from sinful desires and turning toward godly desires, putting off the desires that are part of our old identity and putting on the desires that are part of our new identity. It's not extracting them out of our own natural resources. It's always drawing upon Christ. And so what what it comes down to is the reason I sin, not just me, but you too, is because I believe the lie that sinning is more desirable than God and that God is less satisfying than sin. I believe that something or someone is better or more satisfying than God in his word. The third observation about repentance is because all of our behavior comes out of the desires of our hearts, repentance is always linked to change in behavior. So in Acts 26, Paul said, I declared everywhere I went that people should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. An Indian pastor tells of a man who frequently beat his wife and who also beat up on a a particular Christian that lived in his village. And he did this over a period of, of months and years. And the Christian would continue to uh, confront him about, don't do this. Jesus wants to save you from this. This is wrong, and, and Jesus has a better life for you and for your wife as well. And so this went on for quite a long time. He kept beating up the Christian, beating his wife, and, and one day it finally clicked for the, um, the man who was doing the beating that, hey, Christ is better. Uh, and he turned to Christ, and he got saved. And as the village watched what happened, the whole village turned to Christ because they saw how the Christian endured the suffering and and how he um, continued to be patient and how the man turned to to Jesus Christ. But it turns out that the man telling the story was the pastor. He was the one who had been doing the beating. And the, um, the one that he had been beating up was his associate pastor. So the moral to the story is we should not beat our associate staff. <laughs> Try not to beat up on Greg too much. But that's repentance. That's change, turning away from old life to new life in Christ and change, change of behavior that comes from a, a change of heart. So what do we repent of? Desires and deeds that are contrary to God's word and his worth. We repent of both sin's fruit, that is sinful deeds, and sin's root, that is sinful desires. We work it from both angles. We address the desires, and we address the behavior that come out, comes out of the desires. 
If we repent of anything that we value more than God, that's God's worth. Even if what we desire is a good thing, whether it's a relationship, an activity, a job, a hobby, whatever, we, that is a good thing in and of itself. But if we, if we are serving that more than we are serving God, then we, we have that to repent of. We repent of not living according to um, God's, God's word. Um, so, for example, the Bible calls us to be filled with, with the Spirit and to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. So we repent of the hard attitudes that are not there. So what's on your list today of things to repent of? We always, always have things to repent of, whether we have a, a good... We, the outward part we may have down, verbally, and it may be a struggle, heart, always. So we need to look at what the difference is between true and false repentance because it's easy for the real thing, um, for us not to do the real thing. So true versus false repentance. The basic principle of this is true repentance is focused upon God based upon his provision in Christ that makes for true change. False repentance is focused on self, self-efforts to reform in order to feel better. So, true repentance is focused on God. False repentance is focused on self. The truly repentant person hopes in God's mercy and hates his sin. He doesn't minimize his sin, but he sees it as an offense against the holy God. And we, we, we need the scriptures again and again to refresh and renew our minds on that because we tend to dumb down God in our everyday lives. And so we forget, I live because of the will of a holy God. And so he hates sin, but he's also a God who is rich in mercy. So repentance is confident in God's mercy and willingness to forgive, and it also hates the sin that we commit. We see that in Psalm 51. I'm just going to read a few verses from that. We're going to read that through that, read, pray through that together at the close of this message. But... Psalm 51, listen to the uh, recognition of God's mercy, but also the, the hatred of his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's saying, God, be merciful to me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. But it's not that it's a... It's an easy thing to do, and it's not that I'm minimizing my sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, taking ownership of the sin, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It's constantly in my face. I'm dealing with it. And so I come to you, God, in your, in your mercy, in your cleansing grace. So unless your conscience is ruined or hardened, all of us feel bad when we sin. It's bad when you don't feel bad when you sin. When your conscience has been so worn down, it no longer is sensitive to feel the conviction. But are all guilty feelings part of true repentance? Are all bad feelings part of true repentance? If not, how do we know the difference? Paul addresses the difference between what he calls worldly grief and godly grief. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter nine verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. 
And Paul is writing to, uh, the Corinthian church had problems. They had tolerated sexual immorality in their, in their midst, and they'd actually been kind of proud that they tolerated it. Paul wrote them a letter and rebuked them, and they felt guilty about it, and they actually repented. So this is what he's writing into in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we're going to look at eight principles of true repentance versus false repentance and how godly grief versus worldly grief relates to that. And a lot of these overlap, but we'll work through it. So first principle of true repentance, true repentance moves through grief to a hope in God's mercy that reforms the life. False repentance remains in self-pity and leaves one unchanged at best or in a worse spiritual condition. We tend to think that grief over some action we've taken to be an automatic good. I may have messed up royally, but now I feel really rotten about the whole thing. So are we good? Like just feeling bad, does that pay pay the, the debt that I owe for my sin? There's a huge difference between regret and repentance. Regret feels bad about past sins. Repentance turns away from past sins. Regret regret looks to our own circumstances. Repentance looks to God. Most of us are content with regret. We just want to feel bad for a while, enjoy the emotionally purging process of just feeling bad. Kind of enjoy that. Yeah, I'm just wallowing my sin for a while. But when we don't change, we're not really repenting and we don't want to turn to God is the problem. So godly grief is a fruitful and effective emotion. Um, Matt shared earlier about zeal for, for, for God and God's church. And so um, the Spirit uses godly grief to spur us on in zeal for, for good works and to help us run from sin and start walking in the opposite direction toward righteousness. Worldly grief makes you idle and stagnant. It leads you to wallow in self-pity and useless regret. You don't change, you don't grow, you don't fight against the deeds of the flesh. Instead, you just dwell on your failures and go through all the if-onlys. Oh, if only, if only, if only I would have done this or not done that. So we don't want to stay there. Anyone can feel bad, but being changed is something else entirely. In fact, what's really weird is, have you noticed this? at times, hopefully not in your life, but um, that some people would rather sin destruct, self-destruct than sin destruct. It's like, destroy your sin, don't destroy yourself for the sake of clinging on to your sin. So, for example, Peter's repentance for denying Christ went from bitter tears to reconfirmation of his love for Christ to fearless ministry of preaching the gospel. Judas Repentance, so-called, was merely remorse and led to his taking his own life in, in help, hopeless despair. Second principle of true repentance is true repentance gets rid of the sin and its causes. False repentance laments the consequences but doesn't deal with the cause or the sin. In Israel's early history, the Philistines, Palestinians, 
had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. Not Indiana Jones, that came later. And God judged the, Palestine, or the Philistines um, and, and punished them through afflicting them with tumors and stuff like that. And they finally said, we can't hang on to this ark. We've got to send it back. So let's get the UPS truck and ship it back to Israel. So the ark was back in Israel. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that from the day that the ark was lodged at a place called Kiriath-Jerim, a very long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord... Why doesn't God deliver us? We're still being oppressed by the Philistines. Where is God in all of this? So you have the prophet Samuel saying to them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, true repentance, then put away the foreign gods. Oh, we were supposed to quit worshiping idols. Forgot. For 20 years, they just cried after the Lord and wondered where God was. Meanwhile, they're worshiping idols and, and he said, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. How often have you or others you know stayed in depression or bitterness because of an area of sin you neglected to repent of? Moaning and groaning over the, the suffering, but not dealing with the cause of the suffering. Not all suffering is a result of our sin, but sometimes it is. And we, we just don't deal with the cause, and we just t- tolerate it. Worldly grief deals with only the symptoms of the disease, not with the cause of the disease. It produces despair, bitterness, and depression because it focuses on regret for the past instead of just repenting of the sin. Third principle of true repentance is true repentance will truly grieve for sins when no one is watching False repentance may gush tears before men, even frequently without true change of heart. So King Saul is a really good, bad example of that. Um, He was relentlessly uh, in pursuit of David, trying to kill him. David had the opportunity to kill Saul while they were in the men's room in a cave. David snuck up behind Saul and cut off a piece of his robe rather rather than killing him. And so later, David comes out and reveals himself and says to Saul, Hey, Saul, I had the chance to kill you. I just want you to know that your imagination that I'm out to kill you is wrong. I had the chance. I didn't do it. And so quit quit trying to kill me. And so Saul bawled like a baby, cried big tears, big crocodile tears, and said, Oh, you're more righteous than I am. I'm evil. I'm so bad. No good. You're going to be king. I'm going to lose my job and all of that. But, but you're, you're in the right. It's, actually, it was a pretty good confession. But he didn't change. He just got more and more crazy to kill David. And so that's what can happen when we don't uh, change and we just cry Again, Peter's a good example of tears of genuine repentance that led to change. A fourth principle of true repentance is true repentance will result in leaving sin for the correction of that sin. False repentance may result in exchanging one form of sin for another. Have you ever seen that happen? It's like they quit doing one thing, but they, the thing that they changed to is still sinful. So, like... Uh, one writer said, sin may be exchanged while the heart may be unchanged. Many people of my generation left the hippie, drug, rebellious, anti-materialistic lifestyle 
to become totally materialistic and living for the, the, the dollar. So rejecting one form of sinful lifestyle for another form of sinful lifestyle. At the same time, you had the Jesus movement, and some lives were genuinely transformed out of that. A person may clean up the, the life externally, but for purely selfish reasons, to feel better about themselves or to alleviate negative consequences. But if their change is self-serving and not God-centered, and not out of love for those hurt, one form of sin has been exchanged for another. Fifth, true repentance will result in a life changed in, in the direction of holiness. False repentance may at some point repent of one's repentance. So I'm not talking about perfection, but direction. Um, Peter writes, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Whereas Paul wrote of a people in Thessalonica that turned to God from idols to serve God and wait for Christ's return, what, what repentance results in, true repentance, is the long obedience in the same direction. It's the fruit of true repentance. Not perfection, but direction. Six, true repentance takes ownership of all the details and consequences of the sin. False repentance minimizes responsibility and doesn't empathize with those harmed. So this often involves quick confessions of, I'm sorry, sometimes even admitting a sin. Let's move on and not talk about it anymore. Get over it. Compared to others, I'm not that bad, right? So minimizing the sin, not really taking responsibility for it. And false repentance tends to focus on how hard it's been on them. So, hey, this has been really hard for me to deal with this, this area of sin in my life, rather than to focus on the people that have been harmed or, or God been offended. The truly repentant take ownership of all the details of the sin and don't try to minimize them. They show empathy for those harmed and are willing to talk about it and hear how they've harmed people and take ownership of what they've done. A seventh principle of true repentance is true repentance manifests a humble sense of unworthiness to receive forgiveness and be trusted. False repentance expects, sometimes even demands forgiveness. Hey, you've got to forgive me. You're a Christian. and is angry or impatient with those who doubt the truth of the repentance, who struggle to forgive and trust. The prodigal son, the parable that Jesus told, confessed he had sinned against heaven and against his father and that he was no longer worthy to be treated as the father's son. He hoped the father would be merciful to him and, and receive him back by at least accepting him as one of his hired servants. False repentance insists on quick restoration of privileges. Okay, so I sin, uh, my bad, now let's restore all privileges. And if it's been a long process, it takes a while to rebuild trust. And so true repentance will be patient with the process of regaining and restoring trust and won't be exasperated that people don't immediately accept uh, their change as legitimate. And finally, the eighth and eighth principle of true repentance is true repentance is willing to do whatever it takes for however long to manifest true change of life. 
False repentance may include significant changes of life or words of reform, but only so far as it does not threaten the hardcore of one's sin. Sometimes people will confess some sins or general problems, but not the sin that, that's really at the, at the heart of what's going on. It's kind of like a plea bargain. Well, I'll confess this and this, but I won't really admit to the big thing that I've really done that's the worst thing. True repentance involves real, lasting change. That true repentance is willing to do whatever it takes for however long doesn't mean it wallows in, in worldly sorrow, worldly grief, not enslaved in feelings of guilt, self-pity, depression, helplessness. That's, that's just worldly grief. But basically, true repentance means a, a change, a progress in growth in, toward Christ and in righteousness. It's not, hey, I said I was sorry. Hey, I'm trying. I'm, I'm only human. I'm, I'm not perfect. I want to do the right thing. Isn't that enough? Well, wanting to do the right thing is good, but true repentance involves actually doing the right thing. Okay, so what do we repent of again? Our false repentance, for one thing. Desires and deeds that are contrary to God's word and worth. We repent of both sin's fruit, that is the sinful deeds, and sin's root, sinful desires. We repent of anything that we have valued more than God and made more of a God than the true God. We repent of not having the attitudes and actions that are in keeping with God's word and worth. So how do we repent? We hope in God's mercy and we hate our sin. We don't minimize our sin. We, we let it be as ugly as it is. And we come to God for mercy in Christ. We're confident in God's provision for forgiveness and cleansing through the death and resurrection of our, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The only sins that we can repent of are sins that are forgiven in Christ. So we come to him recognizing he's the only reason that my repentance does any good. We come to God, <clears throat> God with a conviction and hatred of our sin and the conviction that his grace to us in Christ is greater than all of our sin. There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. You can't outsin Christ's grace. Repentance is a gift of God's grace. And repentance is hard and painful. It's a gift. And it's provided for us in Christ, but it's hard and painful. So it's both of those things. If you're repenting of desires and deeds that are contrary to God's word and worth, you will be more and more consumed with Christ, clinging to Christ, conformed to Christ, committed to Christ. You will not be more and more sin-focused, but Christ-focused. Be careful of groups that keep you focused on your sin and not on Christ in trying to help you overcome your sin. We lay aside the sin that clings so closely to us by looking to Jesus, not by fixating on our sin. Now, let's, um, let's pray, read together Psalm 51. This is where David is confessing his sin uh, with Bathsheba. And so he left us a great psalm of confession. 